And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Spain's subs race onto the pitch. They jump up and down singing Campeonas, champions. First the World Cup and now the Nations League. And with that, they've qualified for the Olympics for the first time ever. So can anyone stop Spain right now? And how have they kept winning after the Rubiales kiss scandal? I'm Sophie Penny, and from The Athletic, this is Full Time Europe. Congratulations to Spain. Later, we'll be reacting to the third place result, with Germany making it through to the Olympics and the Netherlands missing out. The re-evaluation started right away, actually. But first, obviously, there was a disappointment because they fought so hard for that last uh, Olympic ticket. But now I'm with the Athletic senior reporter, Michael Cox. Hi, Michael. Hi, Sophie. Thanks for joining us. And the Athletic Spanish football reporter, Laia Cervio Herrero, joins us from Barcelona. Hola, Laia. Hola, Sophie. So Spain beat France 2-0 to lift the Nations League trophy. If anyone's forgotten, that's the new European tournament that's now used to decide Olympic qualification. Laia, what will this trophy and also that first ever Olympic qualification mean to Spain? They have begin an era. I think they have like a great squad and they are achieving a lot of stuff. And it's a way to say, OK, we were champions of the World Cup for a reason. And I think it's important just to celebrate a big trophy for, for them without all the polemics that were involved in the World Cup. Definitely. Michael, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult really to know how seriously to take the Nations League at this stage. But I think the fact that the players reacted with such jubilation shows that they do care. And, you know, European uh, Championships, World Cups, they can throw up kind of surprise results. It's a, a relatively short period of time. You don't really know how much to trust the results sometimes. But to win back-to-back, you know, to to win the World Cup and this. And of course, in the European Championships, they lost very narrowly to England, who went on to win the the tournament. So to me now, it's pretty clear beyond any doubt that Spain are the best team around. I definitely want to talk about that consistency later on as well and how they've backed up that World Cup result. And I think it's also especially impressive doing this winning the Nations League after everything they've been through after the World Cup. You know, the situation with... Uh, Luis Rubiales kissing Jenny Hermoso, the he said, she said, and then Rubiales and coach Jorge Wilder eventually being sacked. I think this makes this an especially poignant moment and we'll come on to that a bit later. Let's get into the football though and talk about the final. We eventually managed to find somewhere to watch it. I think that (laughs) was quite difficult if you were trying to watch from the UK. And Spain had never beaten France in 13 attempts, but off the back of the World Cup, they probably were favourites. Michael, in your article on The Athletic... You say, as you've just said now, Spain are now unquestionably the best side in the world. 
What in that Nations League final showed you that? Is it all about two-time Ballon d'Or winner Aitana Bonmati? A little bit. I, I think just in general, they played better against France than I think they did in any of the knockout stage games at the World Cup, where they're very good. But I just thought they completely shut France out of the game, particularly in the first half. France barely got into the, the Spain half. I thought the way that Spain kept the ball was fantastic. They constantly found players, particularly Bonmati, in dangerous situations. They've got really good relationships down the flanks. I think Carmona and Onabaje are probably the, the best fullback pairing around. They just seem to have so many options for how they can score goals at the moment. So, yeah, it's partly about Bonmati. I think that when she became Spain's key player, when Puteas was out injured, she often faced very tight marking, particularly at the World Cup. And I think she's she's learned how to deal with that. She's learned to vary her position more. And even though France weren't trying to track her with one player in particular, I was really interested how many positions she was popping up. She was coming deep to get the ball from the defenders. Then she was going in behind to score. Sometimes she was coming to the touchline. Other times she was crossing towards the, like, the left channel. She's she's become an all-rounder. And the two goals she scored, one against the Netherlands, one against um, France in the final, very similar goals. And they show her ability to arrive in the box at the right time, which is, you know, the key to scoring goals as a midfielder. I think that's interesting, actually, the fact that they now have finishers too. And Aitana Bonmati has become one of those finishers. And so has Mariana Caldente as well. Hasn't she, Laia? I think it's quite interesting to see that Spain actually have that final product now as well. Yeah, I actually remember talking to that uh, with Michael during the World Cup. I think she is probably one of the most underrated players of Barcelona and also of Spain. Caldente. Yeah, exactly, because I think it's the kind of player that can decide a game. And I think we were talking about that a few weeks ago, that she is now uh, having that position and that time to uh, show what what she's capable of because she normally plays in, in the left sometimes as a midfielder normally as a left winger sometimes also as a, a center forward she always have had somebody in that position that has put her in the shadows and I think this season she's taking advantage of the situation she's showing uh, that she's a great forward that she can Beside games, and I think that probably we will see see her more in the starter teams of Barcelona and also Spain. And I think she she deserves it. Michael, why do you think she's so underrated? Obviously, she's in the shadow of a little bit of Salma Paraguelo, this kind of young star who everyone's talking about, and who obviously is so quick that it means that defenders can't have a high line against her, and she's obviously causing causing that. But why isn't Cal Dente also getting the praise? You almost have to speak about Barcelona and, and Spain in the same terms because it's a lot of the same players. You've obviously had Puteas, who was the Ballon d'Or winner, Naiva Bomati, who's the Ballon d'Or winner, Kira Walsh, who was the most expensive player in the world. Uh, you've got Patry, who scored two crucial goals in the Champions League final. And she's a different player. She's more offensive than that. She does more in the final third. But she's also not someone like Salma, who's just insanely quick. She's, I think, a little bit more clever in tight spaces. Maybe the kind of player who the first or second time you see her, you don't think, wow, she's incredible. But when you see her 10, 15 times, you realise actually she's constantly having an impact on the game. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased she's getting a lot of a lot of credit because she's um, she's always 
just very clever in her movements. She can play in a couple of different positions, as Lia says. And she strikes me as a team player. I think players in the attack sometimes can be focused on going for goal themselves, but she just kind of knits everything together. I think she gets the best out of players around her. And, I mean, one of Spain's key players at the World Cup was Carmona on from left back, scored the winner in the semi-final. She scored the winner in the final. And part of the reason she was so prominent was because, I think, because Cowden taking come inside and is so good at releasing her on the left. So even before she scored, that was kind of going to be the, the article that I, I wanted to write. <laughs> one, saying Bonmati is so hard to stop. And two, Cowden Tay is the one who can step up and provide those qualities as well. So that was a perfect game for me in terms of writing a match report, to be honest. <laughs> Wrote itself. I think what's also exciting about the Spain team is... They're so young, there's more to come from them. Aitana Bonmati has only just turned 26. You've got Salma Barruelo, who's 20. And Vicky Lopez, a 17-year-old, made her senior debut in this camp as well. And then you've also got the likes of Alexia Budeas, who's still out injured and could be coming back for the Olympics. We had a lot of listeners asking about Alexia Budeas why she was on the bench. Is she still injured? Why was she there if she's still injured? Laia, what more can you tell us about that? It's quite complicated. I think the main problem here is that uh, she didn't tell the club that she was going to ask for being on the club, even if she is still injured and she is not medically clean. The reason is that in the national team, they ask her to be there because she is a leader and she is somebody that can influence the other the other players and and she wanted to be there because with the FIFA break you know that uh, in Barcelona there will be just three players trading with you and she's in one stage of her recovery that she needs to be training in a high level to progress in her recovery and be able to play when she comes back to to Barcelona so she felt that she needed that kind of high level to, to continue her, her progression. But if you listen to Jonathan Giraldez in the press conference, he told that he didn't know nothing about it. So it's something that you have to, to tell. Uh, if you talk with Alexia's people, they told you that somebody in the club already knew about that. But I think probably you have to warn your manager about, OK, I'm going to go there, but I don't want to play. I'm not going to play. Uh, I will just talk to uh, Monte Tomei and ask her not to not to play as she did in the semi-final and I think she was in the in the bank on the fin- on the final because she wanted to celebrate with her teammates the title but she didn't want to play and she was she warned uh, Monte Tomei not to play and I think she didn't communicate it that well to the team so that's why it was quite controversial She'll definitely want to be racing back her recovery now, especially with the Olympics. I suppose it's lucky, as Michael says, that it's not necessarily a team that is all based on one individual. It seems like there's a lot of people who can step up to create that success. And we were speaking earlier about that level of consistency that Spain have shown. They're showing that that World Cup win wasn't just a one-off. And that's what's really interested me about this title. And I want to pick both of your brains about this because before the World Cup, Spain had only ever got to the round of 16 of a World Cup. They were kind of regular Euro quarterfinalists. Now they've won 18 of the last 20 fixtures. They've won the last two major tournaments, if you count Nations League as a major tournament. Michael, where has this consistency come from? 
I think two things. One, they've got a very defined way of playing, which comes a lot from a lot of players together at the same club. I don't think there's anyone else in the world that can even vaguely compete with the number of players that Spain can pick that are from Barcelona. And of course, it could be more if Patri and Mapi Leon and others were around. And I think that's become more important. I think we saw at the World Cup, there was a shift away from reliance on individuals and towards teams that play with a real collective identity, a style of playing. And to me, that's the main thing the USA lacked at the World Cup. They've still got very good players, but they didn't really have, I don't think, the build-up patterns, the, the philosophy, if you like, that Spain had and that others had. And the second thing is they've just got lots of very good players. I know it sounds obvious, but if one or two are out, they can bring in players who are of a similar level. And there was players who didn't get off the bench the other day that can start in this team or that had a big contribution in the World Cup. I mean, Teresa Abelera was fantastic at the World Cup. Uh, Alba Redondo was fantastic at the World Cup. And these weren't players who were getting into the side yesterday. So yeah, they've just got such strength and depth. I think that's what consistency comes from. You're not going to be consistent if you're relying on two players. They fluctuate in terms of form, in terms of performance, in terms of injuries. But you do have consistency if, you know, if Alexi is out and uh, and Bomati can can step up and Caldente can step up. It's just they've got so many good players. Yeah, at the same time, I think that you also had that squad in the Euros in 2022. So I think uh, one of the um, things that maybe are not that football stuff, but that are very important are that they were not feeling that confident. And I think during the World Cup, they went through a process of confidence, of telling, okay, we are a team, we have to be together and we are super good. We don't care about Jorge Vila, about who is in charge on the federation. We want to win. And looking at the team, as we were telling before, you can think about Barca. It's a team that it's winning everything in Spain, but then when they play against Olympique Lyonnais, they are not the same team. And I don't think it's because Olympique Lyonnais is much better than Barca. It's because they feel small against big teams that normally used to beat them. I remember uh, that Vicente del Bosque wrote a letter for the players the day before the final, and we published it on The Athletic because uh, he wrote it He wrote it for, for us. And he told something like, in Spain, in the male's uh, team and also in the, in the women's team, there has been always a kind of an inferiority complex and they have to fight for showing their, their quality, which they have, I think. And once they shown, okay, we can do that and we can win a knockout game and we are Spain and we can do that because we have like the best squad we, ha- we have ever had. And it doesn't mean just winning the World Cup, just being able to to beat and do and to do great matches against big teams, something that was impossible one year ago. It's interesting to see the off the pitch effects of this success as well and this confidence that they've got. I know Aitana Bonmati was speaking before the final saying that not much has changed after the World Cup win and she was disappointed not to see the same changes that we're seeing in England. Michael, what do you make of that situation? Why why do you think there haven't been the kind of changes that Bomati would want to see? And do you think that could still happen? I mean, I thought it was interesting that Bomati compared the situation to in England. And for me, the, the thing that happened in 2022 was not really that England won it, it was that England hosted it. You know, that that's why there was such a 
it built up such a fever around the country. I don't think if England had won the European Championships in France or Spain, it would have had the same impact. And the reality is that whether England had won or lost that final against Germany, they sold 90,000 tickets. People were paying hundreds of money on the black market to get tickets. You know, they created something really important. For me, it's the same with the men's team. We hosted the European Championships in 1996. That's where the football's coming home thing came from. It was about hosting the tournament. So... For me, if England had won the World Cup last year, and of course they didn't because they lost to Spain in the final, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as big as winning the European Championships on home soil. Um, and I think England were really lucky with the the timing of that tournament, the hosting of that tournament, and that's why it's taken off. There, there's other issues with Spain, but I think in terms of time zones, in terms of a lot of things, that tournament, as great as it was, wasn't fantastic for European women's football fandom because it was happening on the other side of the world. And now, of course, Spain have won a trophy on home soil in Seville, the Nations League trophy. More than 32,000 fans at La Cartuja were watching that. So let's see if that can have an impact. Laia, where are we at for people who haven't been following the whole scandal with Luis Rubiales. Obviously, a lot of people were aware of that kiss on Jenny Hermoso at the World Cup celebrations. Is Bomati right to say that not much has has changed? What what has changed and where do they still need to go? I think Jenny Hermoso has been speaking as well, hasn't she, recently? Yeah, I think Aitana is quite right about what she's saying because their expectation was something bigger to happen. But you have to understand that in Spain, what happened is actually a big change. If you have into account the changes that has had the national team in the last 20 years, probably, it has changed more in one year than in 20 years. So it's a first big step. It, obviously, uh, there's a lot to improve. And I understand what uh, Aitana is, is saying, obviously. But at the same time, I think that when we look at what happened from the outside, you can tell, okay, it's a big change. It's something big for, for them. They have achieved what they were looking for. But I think on the inside for them was a process that was devastating for, for them. They have had an horrible year, even if they have won the, the World Cup. And it's something that has exhausted them at certain points. So I think probably they were expecting to have like the... Uh, mediatic focus a lot more than they had and uh, in Spain when all the Rubiales gate happened people kind of forget about them again and if you saw that the semi-finals of the Nations League there were like a lot of chairs that were empty the grounds were almost empty and you think okay it's being the same it's, it doesn't matter that that team has won the World Cup recently because people don't want to see them but then you saw the final and the ground, uh, the stands were full of people. I think something has changed, but I think they were expecting more. And that's why Aitana looked disappointed about that. I think everybody is just waiting for the elections for the presidency to, to happen and to see what will happen after that, because I think it's going to be like the, the biggest change. When will that be? It were supposed to happen in the first three months of the year. I don't think it's going to happen because we are in February, almost March, and that hasn't happened. I think uh, before June, it, it should happen. But it's something that it's quite in the air. 
Okay, so before the Olympics, they should have a new president in place. Speaking of the Olympics, I'm aware that we haven't talked about France. They obviously had a disappointing Nations League final against Spain. Zero shots on target. They couldn't really create anything. We will be speaking more about the French team in the build-up to the Olympics, which they will be hosting. But regardless of their performance, they were guaranteed a spot in the Olympics because they're hosting. The team that won't be going, though, now is the Netherlands. More on that next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. You're listening to Full Time Europe from The Athletic. So the Netherlands lost 2-0 to Germany in the third place playoff, meaning Germany got the Olympic spot and the Netherlands didn't. I'm with Dutch journalist Anne-Marie Postma. Anne-Marie, commiserations. What has the reaction been like in the Netherlands? And have people maybe started re-evaluating where the Netherlands are after this? Yeah, the re-evaluation started right away, actually. But first, obviously, there was a disappointment because they fought so hard, as you know, <laughs> to be in the, well, fighting for the third place. I won't say final, but this, that was how it felt yesterday. But fighting for that last uh, Olympic ticket. So there was uh, a lot of disappointment as well, but also a sense of reality. Like, I think from the start, it was pretty obvious to everyone that Germany was the better team. I mean, they showed more fitness and strength. And I think overall they had seven shots on target over the, the whole match and Netherlands just ended up with two. So that says it all. Yeah, so there was this sense of reality uh, with the players and also the coach. And after the match, people talked about what was pretty clear that you're missing three key players. We were missing Pilofa, Miedema and Roort. Last year, Miedema was already missing and it was hard to play without her, but it got them through to the quarterfinals uh, of the World Cup, which is good. And now it showed that with the also missing Roort and Pelova and then the lack of fitness with Daniela van der Donk, who had been, uh, she didn't feel uh, well, she'd been feeling ill. You're very, very vulnerable. The coach, he, he started with the substitutes in a very late stage of the game, which showed that he doesn't know who to bring in at that point. Who do we have on the bench that is good enough to for the last 10, 15 minutes to put some pressure on the on the German team? And yeah, it's vulnerability. And it also means that Netherlands is not world class either anymore or not yet. Like we're in a gap at the moment. We're in between. It must be frustrating because Obviously, they're so close to getting some of those key players back. Viviana Miedema and Palova as well were called up, but then they had to go back to Arsenal. As you say, they they fought really hard to get to be in those semi-finals and finals. I remember that very dramatic uh, fourth goal against Belgium where England thought they were through and then the Netherlands snatched it from them. So it must be difficult to not be able to, to convert that success into that Olympic place. How do they move forward? from this yeah that's a big question now i mean the the qualifications for the euros will start in april and 
we've been at this point before, like right before Mark Parsons came and replaced Wiegman, we were at exactly the same point of should we move on to the next generation, make a switch, or should we hang on to the players that have developed during these years and brought Netherlands to this level? But now it's the second time in a few years that this has happened, and I really think it's time to look at the players that are yeah, part of the next generation. The thing is, some players were actually on the bench yesterday, and he didn't bring them in, and... I mean, the top scorer of the Dutch league was actually on the bench yesterday, Romé Leuchter. And it's always the excuse of, well, she proves that she can score goals in the national league. But compared to other international leagues, the Dutch league is not top level yet. So that's the thing. But then she plays for Ajax and Ajax is in the quarterfinal of the Champions League. So what is the moment that you say, okay, let's go for it, you know, because when you never try, you will never know. Besides that, Romé Leuchter has already proven two times that she's capable of bringing something extra in the game in the last 10 minutes. But the, I think these are some questions. It was too early to ask them yesterday. <laughs> but it will be definitely something people will talk about for in the next few weeks, months, leading up to the, the next yeah, start of a new cycle, actually, in, uh, in April. Because if you look at Vika Kaptein yesterday, she's just 18 years old. And she played... A really good game. It was her first start for the Dutch team. She's been subbed before and she played a, a good game. And she's just 18 years old. So she's she's up for it. Maybe without the Olympics, they'll have a bit more time to try out that young talent. It'll be <laughs> exciting to see those, those names come through. We'll see if that's kind of the approach that they decide to take. But some really interesting food for thought. And thank you so much for coming to speak to us, Anne-Marie. Thank you too. That was me speaking to Dutch journalist Amri Posma. So disappointment for the Netherlands, but joy for Germany. Michael, are you surprised to see Germany through? Not massively. I don't think the Netherlands looked in great shape um, in this tournament. They had a couple of key players out injured. Germany, I must say, I barely saw at the World Cup. Well, they weren't there for very long, were they? <laughs> you were exactly. I was trying to dart around Australia and New Zealand to see everyone, and I expected I'd see them in the knockout stages, and then they didn't even get there. But they've got... Great strength and depth. They've got a load of really good midfield players. So I didn't think it was a huge surprise. I mean, of the two, I would back Germany to have made more of an impact at the Olympics anyway. I think they probably are slightly stronger in terms of the playing squad. Uh, I do always like watching the Dutch, but uh, maybe just time for a bit of a, a bit of a regeneration in terms of their starting eleven now. Yeah, definitely. That's exactly what Anne-Marie Posma was saying, kind of bringing the young talent as a need for a a change there. Just to wrap up this Nations League discussion, I want to get both of your thoughts on whether you liked it as an inaugural competition and whether you liked it as an Olympic qualification process. Laia, what did you think? I have mixed feelings about that because obviously uh, I think for Spain was uh, something positive uh, after the World Cup, just because as uh, Michael was saying before, just to say, okay, we are actually like the best team in the world right now because we have won the World Cup, but also we have proven it in, in the Nations League. But the players maybe are with too many games on their, on their feet. And I don't know if that's good for the injured staff. Two players or three players of Barcelona have been injured during this, this process. So it's something that maybe it shouldn't have to be that long. 
it's my my feeling but obviously for the show it's super good and you have another tournament before the olympic games so you have more football and obviously that's always good but yeah i have kind of mixed feelings about that yeah i kind of agree with liar i mean i like the idea i think there needs to be more matches competitive matches where the top european sides are playing each other you know sad as it is I don't think the qualification system really works. I just don't think there's much point England playing. Who was it? They beat 15-0. I can't even remember who it was. My apologies. But some of the scorelines in qualifying are just, they don't incentivize people to sit down and actually watch the games. Whereas, I mean, I watched Spain's two games against Sweden in the group stage. They were fantastic. I watched uh, a good few of England's games. They had this fantastic situation with the Netherlands uh, going into the final round of group games. The strange thing is, from an English perspective, it seemed to fall flat when it actually got to the final stages. I mean, you alluded to it, Sophie, but it was impossible or almost impossible to actually watch these games, you know, the the Spain-France final in England. So clearly not there yet. Obviously, Lyle's spot on about the number of games that players play. They are mentioning that pretty much every opportunity they can, and rightly so. But I would guess in the next five years, there'll be a system where... I know the Nations League is a qualifier for the Olympics, but I think maybe it it can be even more of a qualifier for the European Championships. Because at the moment, the situation where almost everyone's in the same group, I just don't think it's really worthwhile. There's 16 teams that qualify for the European Championship, and I bet us three could name 14 or 15 of them. You know, there's, there's a lot of countries that aren't really competing at the highest level. So for me, the more matches between the, the top teams, the better. And I think you've mentioned before on the podcast as well, Michael, that actually the thing that's frustrating with Olympic qualification is the amount of spots available at the Olympics. Only 12 teams qualify. So, you know, maybe the problem is not with the Nations League, but with the amount of spots available for the Olympics. To recap, the teams that have now qualified are, I was going to do this all in the languages, but I don't think that's going to work. France, España, (laughs) Deutschland. USA, Brazil, Colombia, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, Japan, and then Zambia or Morocco and Nigeria or South Africa. So that will be exciting to watch. We're going to have to say goodbye to Laia now, who I'm sure will be hoping for another Spain victory in those Olympics. Gracias, Laia. Thank you for having me. I'll keep Michael here for some Lionesses chat. That's up next. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to Full Time Europe with Sophie Penny. Sophie Penny and Michael Cox here with you on Full Time Europe. So England smashed their friendlies, a 5-1 win over Italy and a 7-2 win against Austria. It's almost 18 months before Euro 2025, so Serena Wiegmann gave some new players a chance. And one who stood out, didn't she, Michael, was, was Grace Clinton. She started both games. She got a goal on her debut, For people who don't know who she is, I'll just give a little explainer and then Michael can go into her football. Uh, She's 20 years old. She started, she came through the academy at Everton 
And then she was picked up by Man United. Uh, she went on loan to Bristol City, scored six goals in 12 appearances. And now she's been picked up by Tottenham and she's really been thriving under Robert Villaham. Jesse Parker Humphreys' article in The Athletic says it was her New Year's resolution to make the England squad. So she might have to start making some new resolutions pretty quick. Already halfway through February and she'd achieved that. She obviously got her chance because Frank Kirby had to go back to Chelsea with a minor knee injury. Michael, what stood out to you in her play? I think she's very good in tight spaces, quite a forward-thinking, attacking player. She got into the box very well. Uh, Even before she scored uh, on her debut, she had hit the post with a good effort from the edge of the box. She looks a really good all-round player and a a good all-round player in a position where there is probably a bit of an opening at the moment. There's competition for places, but it's not like she's going into a, a slot where anyone's completely got it nailed down. I think that is interesting. And Jesse says in their article, there's Ella too, Lauren James, Grace Clinton, Jess Park, Fran Kirby, all sort of competing for that number 10 position. So it's kind of one where you do want to try and get your foot in the door. Who do you think is in the lead in that race right now? Who do you prefer there? I mean, it's tough to say. I guess it depends on the system. I mean, obviously, Lauren James is the player with great potential, the player amongst those who can kind of win a game by herself. But she's also very versatile. And we don't know precisely what position she will play in at club level. I mean, once a new manager comes in at Chelsea, it could be a very different role for her. I mean, if you like, as a classic number 10, it's almost like Toon, Kirby uh, and Clinton, I would say, are the players who are kind of broadly what Serena Wiegmann has generally wanted from that position. And I think they're different players. I mean, Kirby, I think he's very good in wide open spaces. I think when she's denied those spaces to kind of run into, she can be a little bit restricted. Toon, I think primarily of as a goal scorer. I don't think that she is necessarily someone who conducts the play, but she's very good at finishing moves. And spectacular finishes as well. Yeah, and she as she did so in, in this international break. And Clinton, I mean, she's so young, she's still developing, but she looks, to me, she looks more of an all-rounder, maybe good in tight spaces, can get into the box as well. I gather that the thing that was missing from her game until relatively recently was the kind of pressing ability, the pressing intelligence. But that seems to have come to her game uh, because I thought that was quite, you know, that was obviously quite prominent during her performances for England this week. So there do seem to be options now. I mean, England... They're not overloaded with options in, in I'd say, the midfield three, if you want to look at it that way. And so Clinton's emergence does seem to be, um, yeah, a very good thing. I think it's exactly what Serena Wiegmann probably would have wanted to get out of these friendlies is some more options. And she had the time also to look at some of the under-23 players who got to train with the squad. So a lot of young faces to look out for. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. No problem. For more on England, Grace Clinton, Spain and the Olympics, head to The Athletic. I also want to shout out George Colkin's behind-the-scenes reporting from Newcastle Women recently. That's on the Pod on the Tyne podcast and The Athletic website. Do check that out. To sign up, it's just $1.99 a month for 12 months. Search theathletic.com slash WSL. Before you go, please don't forget to leave us a rating and a review and also hit follow on your podcast feed. It takes two seconds and it means a lot to us. You can also send in your questions like the one we had about Alexia Puteas to fte at theathletic.com on email or on the socials at The Athletic FC. We'll be back on Tuesday next week as normal. Speak then. Bye bye. 
You've been listening to Full Time Europe, part of the Athletic Football Podcast Network. The producer was Sophie Penny and the executive producer was Abby Patterson. To discover and listen to other great athletic podcasts just like this one, including our brand new daily football briefing, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.